I don't know about you, but one of my favorite shows growing up as a child was, you know, when you normally grow up oh, as yeah. a child, mm-hmm. um, was Saved by the Bell. As were most and, of us 90s kids. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners are thinking, but Tyler, that show was like early 90s, and you were born in like 1993. What the shit? Why are you lying? And listen, I watched reruns, but <laughs> it was an every morning before school, me and our sister Sydney, and I guess Brittany, I don't remember you watching it with us. I like watched it Sydney, when it was actually on. Okay, well, me and Sydney would watch it in the mornings, getting ready for school. So get ready for just some ni- early 90s nostalgia, y'all, because I fell into the whole of Saved by the Bell conspiracy theories last night for like four and a half hours. So, Oh my god. <laughs> okay, that's a long time. The main conspiracy theory thing revolved around Tori. Oh, she was the one in, like, the motorcycle jacket, right? Yes. So, in season four, there was, like, a ten-episode stretch where Jesse and Kelly, who were uh, two of the main characters, just weren't in the show. Mm -hmm. And this rando girl, Tori, is in the show. So, the first episode, they're just, like, not there. This new girl, Tori, starts the high school, which first off, it's weird because there's, it's like one month until graduation, so Tori's parents are assholes for pulling her out of her old school and putting her in this new one (laughs) one month before graduation. Um, Also, no one mentions that Jesse and Kelly have just disappeared. It's like never touched on in the show. So now Tori is one of the main characters for the next ten episodes, And then just as quickly as the switch happened, it flips back and Tori is gone, never to be heard from again, never to be mentioned again. And Jesse and Kelly are back and no one ever talks about, hey, you were gone for 10 (laughs) weeks. What happened? It's not even like a, hey, where were you guys for 10 weeks? Horse camp. Cool. Nothing. No explanation. It's never mentioned. So there's a lot of theories called the Tory paradox um, of just like what the hell happened. And this writer for Funny or Die, um, I cannot remember his name, but he does the videos on YouTube, uh, Zach Morris is Trash, which basically just analyzes different Saved by the Bell episodes <laughs> about how fucked up Zach Morris is as a person. But he wrote a script that is like, this is the episode that will explain where they went, where Tori went, all of the things. And it's based kind of on the episode from Seinfeld that's like the bet or something. What what was that again? So it's the episode where like they either try to see who can go the longest without masturbating or who can go the longest without (laughs) sex. But the script is like 18 pages long. It is fucking hilarious. Very dark. Um, If you Google, like, the AV Club did an article about it when it came out, like, a month ago. So if you Google, like, Saved by the Bell, the AV Club script, you'll be able to find it. And it's so true. Like, I'm reading it and I'm like, God, 
I could 100% see this as an episode. You know, I of mean, course you would tell me this right before we were going to record. And so I have like two hours until I can go read this. So thank you. Yeah, I know. You're welcome. <laughs> well, um, hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I am Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And there's a little bit of 90s nostalgia to start y'all off on this episode. I know. But I'm going to move ahead because we have a jam-packed episode for you guys. Yes, we do. I'm going to jump straight into uh, Patreon. So first and foremost, I want to thank our newest Patreon members, Star, who is our newest Merlot Mafia member. Star, thank you so much. Welcome. You're amazing. We love you. And Jessica, our newest Chardonnay Syndicate. We love you. You're amazing. Hi, Jessica. You're a rock star. So thank you both so, so much for becoming members of the Blood and Wine family on Patreon. If you are also interested in being as awesome as Star and Jessica and joining the family, check out our Patreon page. What? Sorry, when you said it, the way you said it, like join the family, it made me think of like the Manson family. And I didn't realize that we had just done that. And we did. Well, that's exactly (laughs) what it is. Oh, God. Hope you all know by joining our Patreon, you are joining our cult. Yes, Um, it is the Blood and White family, but I promise we're not going to make you do really fucked up things. No, we're going to instead give you um, access to our murder mini episodes, to our wine review episodes, also known as Bottle Talk, and also access to a bunch of other little perks that you get um, at our different levels. So... Also sticking with our Patreon is actually the topic of our episode. So like we've mentioned before, one of our benefits of our Cabernet Sauvignon Convicts, uh, which is our highest tier, is you get to direct an episode. So you can pick a topic or pick a case or both, and we'll do that episode. So today's episode is brought to you by none other than Kelsey... Thank you so much, Kelsey. And the topic is one we've done before, but it's definitely one that I've been wanting to revisit. And I'm going to say it now, probably going to be our most fucked up episode yet. Yes, I, well, you know, it gets really difficult to um, determine that because most of our episodes are pretty messed up. But this one, it really is the icing on this cake of being super messed up so yeah Yeah. and that is because the topic for today is torture which in every aspect of it is awful there's no good torture so not that most of our cases i mean there's not good doctors who kill and there's not good serial killers yeah but you know i'm just like torture i feel like is just a its own level of evil. It is. Oh, that's a good way to put it. I agree. And if you are interested in hearing some of those other episodes that we've talked about, be sure to check us out on Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, hit the subscribe button. Our episodes come out every Tuesday, so they'll just automatically be there in your podcast feed. Well, since we do have a very jam-packed episode, I want to tell you guys about my wine because I picked one that's really different. So the wine that I picked for this episode is the 2017 Floriana Grüner Veltliner from Hungary. And it is a white wine. And I've never had a wine from Hungary before. No, me neither. I was looking in the German section and this was right next to it. And I was like, okay, we're going to give this a go. 
And this one, actually, it's from Trader Joe's, and it was only $6 a bottle, but every single nice. review I was reading was noting that it was one of the top wines that you can find in a Trader Joe's. And so, like, it was just extremely highly rated. Like, everything is, like, best valued wines at Trader Joe's. This one was on the list. So, definitely check this out. It is a light-bodied, dry white wine. So, it's going to be very fresh and lively with aromas of lemon and apple and just a touch of some white pepper. And it's it's a white wine, so it's really good with chicken, seafood, and, like, other finger food dishes. You know, whatever they're passing around on an order of tray. You could drink this with it. Um, so when you first are tasting this wine, you know, you look at it, it's going to be a very light color. Um, I'll let you guys know once I actually do pour it. But it's got those really pleasant aromas of citrus and floral notes, plus a little bit of tropical fruit and banana. So when you taste it, like I said, it's light bodied, it's dry, and it has just a bit of an effervescence. It's also got a very fresh flavor. So, you know, citrus, grass, and lots of lime. So mixing that in with like your tropical fruits and whatnot that I mentioned earlier. It's not a very mm-hmm. complex wine, but it does have a lot of acidity and it's very refreshing. So again, things like that make it a very good food wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the end, it's going to be dry and crisp with a little bit of minerality. So yum. yeah, Tyler, this honestly sounds like one that's very up your alley more than it is mine. But I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward to branching out. And it's a screw top. So that makes it easy. Well, in keeping with the fact that you chose a wine that most people would assume is more my taste palette, I chose a wine that I think most people would assume would be more up your alley. Um, Absolutely. Because I did it, guys. I chose a Chardonnay. This Chardonnay requires a story. I have told y'all many times about how much I love Saracena Vineyards, how I found them, and the creepy hippie commune. Yeah. But when I was there and visited the winery back in 2016, I only tried their reds. I never tried any of their whites. So a couple weeks ago, I was on their website because I had forgotten until just then that you can order wine and have it shipped to you in Texas. I got on their website, bought wine, it arrived, and I am trying the bottle of the 2017 Unoaked Chardonnay from Mendocino County by Saracena Vineyards. This one is a bit on the pricey side. It's a $20 shard. So this wine, it is a Chardonnay, but it's a bit of a blend, just a tiny bit. It's actually 97% Chardonnay and 3% Viognier. So the fruit was whole cluster pressed, settled, and then fermented to dryness entirely in stainless steel. And malolactic fermentation was inhibited to keep the wine very fresh and bright And the wine remained on primary lees for just less than two months prior to blending in order to retain the pure expression of the fruit which they were going for. Uh, Because of all of this, the flavor, according to winemaker Alex McGregor, who is the winemaker of this wine, the 2017 Unoak Chardonnay offers aromas of Bartlett pear, nectarine, and a crisp, snappy note. The palette shows stone fruit and ripe citrus flavors that are light and lively, 
unhampered by overbearing oak or malolactic influence. This is a pure expression of Chardonnay, a ray of sunshine that carries itself admirably without weight. Pair this versatile wine with simple steamed fish with pesto, or with grilled chicken with olive oil and fresh summer herbs. I'm so excited for this wine. It sounds phenomenal, and I'm really sad right now that we're in different places and aren't able to share this wine. And their bottles look so classy, so just... Oh, I I, love the label. I do too. And the label's the same on all of their different wines. Um, It's very like, I don't know, almost like a a splotch of paint, but it's a different color for each wine. So for the Chardonnay, it's a golden, and then for... I know the Cabernet is black. Their Malbec is a bright blue. Yeah. Yes. Oh my gosh. Little that, little baby pop there. That was a baby pop. How does it smell? Good. Ooh, it smells so fruity. Yeah. Mm. I'm excited to see this color. Okay. That's a light Chardonnay. That Chardonnay is almost as light as mine. Oh, it is. Like... That is a super light Chardonnay. This one, when I smell it, like, oh my gosh, it's so bright. I can tell like lime and green apple and we definitely need to cheers so I can try this wine. Yes, we do. Cheers. Cheers. When they said dry, they were not kidding. So this is, I get what they mean with the little bit of the effervescence because I could feel it on my tongue, like the little bubbles. And so you can see those little bubbles there at the bottom. Um, They're very faint. So like, it's not like a sparkling wine or anything like that, but it definitely, you can feel it on the tongue and it is very bright. I'm really getting a lot of this citrus and lime and... I smell a little bit of banana, which is interesting, like not in a bad way, but I definitely smell it. But crisp, mineral, bubbly, this one would be absolutely perfect on a really hot day. Like, you know, our Texas summers that climb into the 100s because of how crisp it is. And with the the little bubbles, it would really be a nice one that if you, I don't know, happen to be at a pool, like maybe in the water, like you're cooling off there. I told you, all white wines are pool wines to me, but this one... I mean, yeah. I'm just trying to point out the fact that this one has, like, the bubbles and it is super fresh, that Mm -hmm. it would definitely mix well with being outside or spicy food. I'm surprised in myself with this one. I'm actually enjoying it. Um, Like I said, it's very different than what I normally have, but I'm really Mm -hmm. glad I branched outside the box on this one. This is a good summer wine. I... Definitely, I'm going to have to get myself a bottle of that. Definitely. I mean, especially for $6, I can see why this is one of the top-rated wines at Trader Joe's. Um, And I also, it's making me really want to try other Hungary wines. But I also definitely saw your face when you took a sip of yours. So please tell me. Please explain the face. Yeah, I think I ascended to a new plane of existence for a little bit there. Many of y'all know, I don't like oaked Chardonnays. I have had an an unoaked one before, and I liked it better, but it's still not my favorite. This is one of the best wines I've ever had. It's exactly what I want out of a Chardonnay. Because for me, a Chardonnay is when you want 
a heavy white wine. Right. When you want something that's going to have weight on your tongue, it's going to have those kind of blunt, heavier feelings in your mouth. I also like my white wine to be more on the bright, fruitier, floral side. So that's why I'm very drawn to Sauvignon Blancs. This wine, it is like, I don't even know, like a granddaddy Sauvignon Blanc. Like it it has those bright, fresh, floral fruit citrus flavors, but it has that weight of a Chardonnay. Again, I was transported to another plane of existence (laughs) and... I found my Chardonnay. You did find your Chardonnay, and I'm really excited for this moment because I know, like, literally, I feel like episode one, you're like, I hate Chardonnay. And anytime I talked about it, you're like, I hate Chardonnay. And now you're like, unless it's Saracena, my new love. Yeah. Um, I just took another sip of mine, and I very much got those tropical fruits, like almost a little bit of, like, mango, maybe some, not necessarily coconut, but you know how coconut is much sweeter than a lot of fruits? So I got, like, a sweetness similar to coconut. That sweet earthiness. Yeah, this one's continuing to surprise me. So before we jump into this week's episode, we have some really exciting news for you guys. We have partnered up with First Leaf, which First Leaf is one of those subscription services for wine, and it's literally one of my favorites. With First Leaf, like you just start off, you take a quiz, and you answer all these different kinds of questions about maybe some wines that you've had, some flavors you're looking for, and all the while when you're answering these questions, they're determining your wine preferences based on your taste. And they're going to put together an introduction box that has six wines that are based on your results. So they're custom to you. And once you get them, you try all of those wines, you rate all of those wines, and firstly uses those ratings that you did to recommend other wines that you might like. And you've got your curated club orders of six bottles of wine that are perfectly matched to you. So... If you do happen to get one that you don't like, then you just send it back. You let First Leaf know, they'll replace it because it's important to them to give you wine that you're going to enjoy. But, you know, say you don't really feel like going for the six that they recommend in your intro box. That's fine. They have other intro boxes that they've already put together and you can just pick one of those. So it really does give you a lot of different options and a really great way to try a lot of new wines. And side note, we've been doing a couple of these wines on the episode. Um, Tyler and I both got our first box and some of the new wines, like last week, that Pinotage that I told you, I had never even heard of that grape. That was one from my first leaf box. And so it's been ways that we're able to branch out and just try things that are completely new. Also, their member benefits are amazing. So your shipment of six bottles, all of them are $15 each, no matter what wine you get. And these are like t- usually 20 to $30 wines. I mean, they're... You're getting a heavy discount just right there. And you can also order additional boxes other than the curated ones. So let's say you get your monthly curated box and you're like, yes, I'm doing this. But I'm also planning an end of summer party. So I'd love to get the California Coastal Whites. You can place another order and get that California Coastal Whites because you can place an order at any time. 
And they partner with some amazing wineries, and many of their wines are in the 90-point range and have just a ton of different awards and medals. So with our partnership, if you visit page.firstleaf.club slash bloodandwine and then enter the code, in all caps, bloodandwine at checkout, you get free shipping for a year, which shipping is normally $10 per shipment. So if you're getting one shipment a month, that saves you $120. And if you're wanting to get more than one shipment a month, that's even more savings, which is just amazing. Which is an amazing deal. Like this, guys, this type of deep discount, not only that you're already getting on these bottles of wine, but then also free shipping, that's huge. You're saving so much money. You could literally order like a shipment a week and get 52 shipments. And those 52 shipments are all going to have free shipping. Um, But just make sure to visit page.firstleaf.club slash blood and wine and enter blood and wine as the promo code in checkout to get that free shipping. That's a lot to remember. So you can also check out any of our social media pages and we'll have all the information there for you as well. Yes, we're adding those links to our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So literally so pumped to start this partnership with First Leaf and share it with you guys. We've been holding this in for a while and haven't, Mm -hmm. we've really wanted to tell you guys. But anyway, okay, we've got our wine. We've talked about our topic from Kelsey. You ready for me to get into my case? Not at all, but let's do it. Okay. So the case I did is one that the first time I heard it, I literally thought this was like a Stephen King fiction novel. Like there was no way this was real. But this one is The Torture of Colleen Stan. And the sources I used for this one were All That's Interesting, Ranker, Investigation Discovery. Um, They had an article on their crime feed. And then I also watched an Investigation Discovery documentary called Bound in a Box, The True Story of Colleen Stan. So, Oh, God. Just the title of that. Yeah, the title gives you chills down your spine, and you only think that you know what I'm about to tell you, but you don't. The morning of May 9th, 1977... Colleen was 20 years old, and she was hitchhiking from her hometown of Eugene, Oregon, to Northern California. She's going to go to a friend's birthday party and, and surprise her friend. So they didn't know that she was coming. This was all a surprise. And Colleen, this was not the first time she had hitchhiked. She considered herself an expert. She had made her way south before, accepting rides from people. And on that day in May, she made it, you know, partially into California, but she was being smart about it. She would look at the cars that were stopping for her. She would determine if they felt safe and she'd already turned down two rides. They just didn't feel right. So she's not being naive about this. However, when she was in Red Bluff, California, a blue van pulled over and Colleen saw who was driving. It was just this man and his wife in the passenger seat and they had a baby in the back seat. So she's like, oh, this is a really young couple and her, their child. They look like a really safe family. So she hops in the car with them. Sadly, she did not know what she was in for because this family was anything but safe. So the man that picked her up was 23-year-old Cameron Hooker and his wife was 19-year-old Janice Hooker. 
And as it turned out, they'd been actively looking for a hitchhiker to kidnap. Cameron was a lumber mill worker, and he had these very intense bondage fantasies. Until they captured Colleen, he had been using his wife Janice to fulfill these fantasies. So... Colleen's in the car, and at one point, they stopped at a gas station, and Colleen went inside, went to the bathroom, just, you know, as she's standing there at the sink, washing her hands, she just has this voice in her head that says, jump out the window and never look back. And it repeated itself a couple of times, but she just ignored the voice, and she was just like, oh, that's really odd. And she got back in the car. And when she got back in there, there was this strange box in the seat next to her that had not been there before. I mean, she didn't know what it was. It was just some box. She just ignored it. Shortly after Colleen got back in the van, you know, she'd only been in there maybe about 30 minutes, Cameron veered off the road to a really remote area. And his wife, Jan, gets out of the car and she's like standing by the stream with the baby. And Colleen's just sitting in the back seat like, okay, well, this is weird. Like, I don't really know why they're stopping. And the next thing she knows... Cameron had opened her door and was holding a knife to her neck. I knew something was going to happen when they pulled off the road, but Jesus. He then handcuffed her, gagged her, and forced her head into that box that had been in the seat next to her. This box weighed 20 pounds. Oh. And this box, it only confined her head. So that was the only thing that was inside it. So it was pitch black in there. And there was soundproofing material all around her head. So all the sound and light were just completely blocked out. She didn't have any fresh air that was flowing into it. She was just completely isolated from the outside world. But just think of how scary this would be. Because, you know, she's still sitting in the car. She can feel the car. She knows where she is. She knows she's obviously in danger. And she has this 20-pound box on her head like literally like neck up covering everything like i'm super claustrophobic and that is one of my worst nightmares i didn't know i had this nightmare before but now i do well this is going to get even worse for you so the car eventually drove to a house where cameron and jan lived and colleen was led down a set of stairs into their cellar and this is where we she was subjected to some horrifying forms of torture. They got her down there, stripped all of her clothes off of her, and she looks up and and tied to the ceiling. Well, they they take the box off of her head when she's down there. So she looks up and tied to the ceiling are like more handcuff things. So he puts her wrists into these cuffs. And she's hanging from the ceiling. And to get up there, she had to step on a small box. And he kicks the box out from under her as soon as her arms are hung up there. So she's hanging by her arms from the ceiling, not able Uh. to touch the floor. And this is when she's beaten, electrocuted, whipped, and even burned. The next thing she knew after Cameron had been torturing her while she's hanging there is that Cameron and Jan started having sex just right next to her. When they were finished, Cameron took colleen off of the ceiling like off of the the hand straps laid her down on a table and put her head back in the box so that first night colleen was forced to sleep in a wooden box that cameron had constructed to keep you know her from escaping and the box had the dimensions of a crate and so 
Colleen was not able to lie down inside of there. She's kind of like scrunched up like a ball sitting up inside this box. And she's bound by chains inside of it. And so that's how she spends her first night. So Colleen's family knew that she was headed to this party, as did her roommates. Her roommates knew that she was going for the surprise. But the roommate found out she never showed up to this party. And so Colleen's roommate contacts her parents. And their parents had no idea what happened. They filed a missing persons report. But no one at the police office seemed too alarmed at this time. I mean, it's we're in the 70s here. Colleen is 20 years old. There's no real reason to be alarmed at this point that she went missing. So back to Cameron and Jan. Initially, when they kidnapped Colleen, this couple had an agreement that Cameron was not allowed to engage in sexual activity with Colleen. Instead, she was just forced to watch them have sex after they abused her. However, later on, this agreement would change and Cameron started incorporating rape into his form of torture. Cameron would torture Colleen and then rape her before having what he referred to as cuddle time, where he would tell Colleen that he loved her and that everything was going to be okay. And he would just hold her. So this is just so many levels of fucked up that it's, it's just hard to get through this, to be completely honest, because I know where this story is headed and I am just at the beginning. The family ended up moving to a mobile home, so Colleen and Jan and their daughter. Because remember I said there was a baby in the car? Well, that's their daughter. In this mobile home, of course, they no longer had a basement to hold Colleen prisoner. So Cameron built Colleen a coffin-like wooden box where she was kept in chains underneath the bed for up to 23 hours a day. Oh, Hell fucking no. So this is why Colleen is known as the girl in the box. Cameron, when he would put her in the box, he put chains around her neck, ran the chains down her body, chaining up her ankles, chaining up her arms. And then he had a little blower that would blow air into the box. Despite these air holes that he had made, it routinely would reach over 100 degrees during the summer months inside that box. And again... The interior of this box is pitch black. Colleen is completely in the dark 23 hours a day. Colleen also, like you mentioned earlier, you have, she has claustrophobia too. So she would get extremely anxious anytime she was in the box. And she would have to focus on being locked up in the box and listen to the fan next to her head just to keep going on. She was going to lose her mind otherwise. So... The couple had two young daughters, and one of these daughters was actually born while Colleen was under the bed. Jan went into labor in the bed and had her baby, all while Colleen was underneath the bed in her box. And they actually did pull Colleen out of the box to let her meet the baby and, you know, almost share this moment with her. But then they put her back in the box and it was over. These two young children... They didn't realize that Colleen was being kept there against her will. They didn't even know that she was actually living in the house or was underneath the box. As the relationship between Colleen and Cameron and Jan started to grow, they would let Colleen out of the box for an hour or two each day. She would babysit the kids. However, 
every time she was taken out of the box, since it always was for just a very minimal amount of time, she never knew what to expect. And that fear of the unknown was always with her. And she was kept in the dark, both mentally and physically. She had no idea what was going on in anyone's lives in that house. She couldn't see anything, obviously, because she's in the pitch black box. And I don't even really know if she knew that Jan was pregnant. Like, I don't know if she even really saw Jan. Well, and she doesn't know how long she's been there. Well, she'd been held captive for a few months at this point in time. After she'd been there a few months, Cameron coerced her by fear into signing a slave contract. This contract effectively forced Colleen to give up her own free will and allow herself to be treated as the couple's personal property. It was also this night, the night of the contract signing, she had been in captivity for eight months, and it was the first time that she learned Cameron's name. And the reason she found out his name is because his name was on his belt. So you know those leather belts that have like the stamps of like your name? Mm -hmm. It said Cameron on the side. Eight months there, and she didn't even know this guy's name. Up until this point, like, she only knew Jan's name because Cameron would call her Jan. Cameron, after having Colleen sign this, also gave her a new slave name. It was Kay. She was no longer Colleen, and she was required to call him Master and Jan Ma'am. So calling them Master and Ma'am was just an excuse that Cameron and Jan had to further dehumanize Colleen. And also by giving her a slave name. Jan also referred to Kay as a piece of furniture, saying that she was no more important anything in the house than a piece of furniture. What is wrong with these people? A lot. So after, quote-unquote, Kay signed the contract, she was given the right to go upstairs. She would do chores, cook dinner, and more. And, you know, as a slave, she wore a collar that Cameron had designed for her. Although she was subjected to regular beatings and multiple rapes, Colleen didn't actually consider that torture the worst aspect of her confinement. What terrified her even more was Cameron's claim that he was a member of a satanic organization that was called The Company. Colleen was told that The Company was a very powerful organization who watched over her and had her family's home bugged. At one point in time, Jan was on crutches, and Cameron told Colleen that Jan had done something wrong and the company hurt her, and that this injury had required multiple surgeries to heal her injuries. And Cameron also told Colleen that he was a member of the company, and part of what they did was enslave women like herself. The company was like this fictional organization that was somewhat like a cross between crime mob slavery and big brother and cameron continuously used it to subdue and threaten colleen she i mean she completely believed you know everything he was doing to her like this made sense as to uh, reasoning as to why this is happening well she has no reason not to believe him exactly and because of this fear that had been instilled in her with the company and the fact that they were watching her family she did not try to escape because she was worried that her family would be killed. So over the next several years, Colleen became completely brainwashed. She complied with Cameron and his wishes. And because of this, 
Colleen continuously earned more and more freedom. She was eventually allowed to work in the garden and go for jogs around the block. And before she would leave, Cameron would instill all this fear in her, saying that anyone she talked to could be in the company, and it kept her silent. So not only, like, she was literally granted freedom to run around the block, but the fear that he had put into her about the company meant she never tried to run away, she never tried to talk to anyone. She's literally passing people every day who could save her, but... He's terrified her so much and enslaved her so much that she can't. Yeah. So after three years and ten months in captivity. Oh my god. In March 1981, Cameron actually took Colleen to Oregon to visit her parents. He had told her that he had tried really hard and, you know, submitted a request to the company and they finally approved the visit. He told her no slave had ever been approved this type of visit. So, you know, this was really special. But Cameron had to test her loyalty. Cameron then handed her a gun and he told her to put it in her mouth and pull the trigger. And she obeyed. Luckily for Colleen, there was no bullet that was discharged. Although Colleen did later say that she honestly didn't care whether there was a bullet in there or not. Like, it really didn't matter to her. During this trip... The threats of the company frightened Colleen to the extent that she did not tell her mother and father that she had been held captive and forced to sign a slave contract. Instead, Colleen actually introduced Cameron as her fiancé named Mike. And, you know, Mike was his company name that he was given. Yeah. So her family had no idea that she was being held against her will. They were so ecstatic to see her because it had been almost four years at this point since she had gone missing. They never gave up hope that she was still alive. So they're extremely happy and they're just going with it. You know, they take a picture of the happy couple. They document being reunited with her and meeting the man that they thought she intended to marry. They were very concerned for her, but they thought she joined a cult. However, they didn't want to pressure her at all because they were scared it would cause her to disappear for good. You know, it had already been so long since they'd seen her and she shows back up visiting with her fiance. The only thing that they could think of was like, oh, she must have joined a cult. Like, let's not. Yeah, I mean, they can tell she's been brainwashed. I mean, they can tell that things are not okay. But I mean, she's back and the things that they're thinking are like, you know, this isn't good, but at least she's safe. And it's the fact that that's so far from the truth. Well, and I will say, I don't think they could tell how scared she was. They no. they knew that she was different. That the Colleen that had left four years ago was not the Colleen that was in their home right then. But yeah. they weren't willing to to frighten her off by saying anything because they thought, I mean, shit, if we do something, we may never see her again. So we're not going to risk it. We want her in our lives. Well, and at least if they do nothing now and she stays in their lives, they can at least keep some sort of watch on her. If she leaves forever, they can't. So, God, that's a horrible position to be in. Well, and Colleen was supposed to be able to stay with her family for the weekend. Like Cameron actually like dropped her off Friday night met the family, whatnot. Then he comes back Saturday. They do like the pictures and whatnot. And he's like, hey, like, we got to go. Her family, you know, her dad said as he saw them driving off, he didn't take note of the license plate. And he 
always regretted not writing it down because they had no idea who this man was. They knew him as Mike. They had no way to reach her. They had no way. So Colleen lived back in the box for another three and a half years. So again, it would oftentimes get so hot inside this box that she would hallucinate and she came really close to death on more than one occasion. Sometimes her long stints in the box were interrupted by occasional acts of kindness. So she's, this this latter three years, she's no longer babysitting the kids, being the slave. She's in the box. They would let her out sometimes, like this one moment they baked her a cake for her birthday and they gave her a Bible that was inscribed with their names and it had their actual names on it. That was it. She came out, had some cake back in the box and that was their act of kindness. But at this point in time, things started to change a little bit. Colleen and Jan started studying the Bible together and Colleen believes this is part of what helped Jan to humanize her and not see her as this piece of property. At this point in time, Cameron had plans to abduct even more women, and he told Colleen that she would have to help train them. And he even had Colleen help him dig a hole in the backyard that he called the dungeon for the other slaves. Colleen Stan was kept captive for seven years, from 1977 to 1984. And towards the end of that seven-year span... Cameron said that he wanted Colleen as a second wife. This didn't really bode very well for Jan. And Jan is starting to to just really not like the situation. And Jan confessed that Cameron had tortured and brainwashed her since they first started dating each other. And that she had developed denial techniques and compartmentalized that aspect of her life just to, to shut it off. And so that's why Jan was the way she was at the beginning. Like, she was also a victim of Cameron's. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what's so hard about this, because it's so easy to hate her, too, for how much she's done and the shit she's put Colleen through. And it's not okay, but you cannot forget that she is a victim, too. Absolutely. And after this turning point, Jan revealed to Colleen that Cameron was not part of the company and that the company was not real. And Jan helped her escape. She drove her to the bus station before Cameron returned home from work one day. And it was this moment when Jan revealed that the company was not real. Colleen had this mental breakthrough. She had been a seven-year victim of Cameron's. And at this point, she is realizing she could escape without risking her family's safety and that she always could have. So when Jan's helping her, she's like, yeah, let's do it. Jan takes her to the bus station and while Colleen's waiting, she is so angry that she believed these lies for so many years. She actually calls Cameron from a payphone and told him that she was leaving. And he broke down in tears, telling her not to leave, telling her he loves her. And she left. However, Colleen gets back home with her family in Oregon, and she didn't tell anyone, including the police, about the years of horror that she endured. She was really embarrassed. She couldn't believe it had happened. She is showing all of the signs of just a a victim of so much mental and physical torture that she couldn't even tell anyone. I mean, she has so much 
post-traumatic stress. And as much as she was able to, like, liberate herself from it, she's not been able to liberate herself from being a victim. You know, he still has this control over her. He does. And it didn't help that before Jan helped Colleen escape, she made Colleen promise that she would not go to the authorities about the terrifying ordeal because Jan thought that Cameron might be able to reform himself through counseling and prayer. However, Jan eventually realized that Cameron was unable to give up his sadistic and cruel ways, and she told her pastor about what happened. The pastor encouraged her to contact law enforcement. So on November 18th, 1984, many months after Colleen's escape from captivity, authorities finally arrested Cameron. I wonder what... I know there are certain legal protections around, like, you know, what you can tell a lawyer or what you can tell a therapist, and they can't report it for certain things. I don't know what those are regarding, like, religious officials. I don't know. You know, like, would this priest have been allowed and i'm i'm thinking just like judicial law not church law because i don't i'm sure it's different across many religions and faiths but you know would that be admissible in court as a confession or something like that or would that be able to be used to arrest someone or not i honestly don't know because i think it would be along the lines of attorney client privilege I think it falls in a similar vein to that. But thankfully, you know, Jan did go to the police. And and her pastor, who's someone she obviously very much looked up to, told her, you need to go turn your husband in. And she was like, I do. Well, and when you think about it, Colleen never did go to the police. Jan is the one who did this. And so that is something that really you really do get to see her and think of her as as the victim more so in this after she turns around and like she reveals these things and she and Colleen build a relationship and she's basically like oh fuck I need to get this girl out of here because she is going through what I went through except way worse and the thing is had Jan not done this and he started to kidnap other women and have Colleen train them Colleen would have been to them what Jan was to her in the beginning. Exactly. And it, and they're all victims, and maybe they wouldn't have viewed her as a victim, but... I know. So, Cameron Hooker was charged with sexual assault and kidnapping using a knife. Even though Jan helped her husband capture Colleen and keep her prisoner for seven years, she wasn't charged with the crime. The courts had granted her full immunity because she agreed to testify against Cameron. Prosecutors believed that Cameron had mentally and physically abused Jan, which made it nearly impossible for her to have defied her husband and stopped the horrors that he made Colleen endure. Like she, again, like we were just saying, she's also a victim. She couldn't keep him from doing this. During Cameron's 1985 trial for capturing and abusing Colleen, Jan revealed that her husband captured another woman, 19-year-old Marie Elizabeth Sponhake. On January 31st, 1976. Oh, so before Colleen. Yeah, the year before. The couple found Colleen. They picked up Marie Elizabeth when she was hitchhiking in Chico, California. According to Jan, 
They took the young woman to their home in Red Bluff, and Cameron physically harmed and eventually murdered Marie. Marie's body has never been found, and authorities were not able to find enough evidence to prosecute Cameron for Marie's death. But during the trial of, you know, Cameron's trial, he could be heard saying under his breath, I should have killed her too, when he was referring to Colleen. So... Colleen's experience was described as unparalleled in FBI history, and Cameron Hooker was found guilty and given consecutive terms totaling a 104-year sentence. In 2015, he was denied parole, and it will be a minimum of another 15 years before he's eligible for parole again, so it won't be until 2030. Because of all of the time that Colleen spent in the box, she suffered chronic back pain and shoulder pain as a result of that confinement. And when she returned home, she received extensive therapy and she did eventually marry and have a daughter of her own. She joined an organization that was committed to helping abused women and earned a degree in accounting. Colleen and Jan both changed their names and they continued to reside in California, but they do not communicate with one another. Colleen now also helps to provide support to other women who have been victims of abuse. Colleen had a severe case of Stockholm Syndrome. And Stockholm Syndrome, we've talked about this a little bit before, but Mm -hmm. with this syndrome, victims develop empathy for their captors as this psychological survival instinct. And in Colleen's case, part of her Stockholm Syndrome was accepting that conspiracy of the company that Cameron used to coerce her into slavery and this extended imprisonment. And over the years, because of that trauma and fear, her Stockholm Syndrome didn't permit her to act against Cameron. And like I mentioned earlier, ultimately, it was Jan who notified authorities about Colleen's years of abuse. Yeah, There have been multiple television shows, movies, and other studies have been done since Colleen's escape in 1984, including the main point of the Poughkeepsie tapes, as well as multiple episodes of Law and & Order and Criminal Minds, which you can absolutely, if you've watched either of those shows, you can definitely see how a yeah. case like this would influence them. But the good news, it is absolutely horrible torture, is that Colleen Stan survived and that she was able to build a life after this and she's trying to help others like her. That is the case of the torture of Colleen Stan and I will say if you do have a moment take 45 minutes and watch that ID documentary called Bound in a Box. It's I mean Colleen is the one telling the entire story so you get to to see her and there are reenactments but Honestly, because of the way this story is, it needs reenactments. Because like I said at the beginning, this literally feels like a Stephen King novel. And the fact that this is real is so horrifying that I just, I am so beyond impressed in Colleen's strength to survive something like this. Because I don't think I could. Well, knowing what my case is and having heard yours... I can confidently say now, this is our most fucked up episode yet. Yep. All right. Are you ready to jump into yours? No. I mean, I'm not, but I'm going to. So the case that I chose is the case of David Parker Ray, also known as the Toy Box Killer. So the sources that I used are Investigation Discovery, True Crime XL, 
thinking about philosophy, seem it, and all that's interesting. So this young woman was running down this dirt road, completely naked, and just running as fast as she could. You know, she's on this dirt road, the stones are hurting her feet, but she is running for her life. No matter what it took, Cynthia Virgil was going to escape. You literally just sounded like the beginning of a horror movie, and I have chills already. You haven't even gotten into this, and I already have chills. It all gets worse. So it's late afternoon on March 22nd of 1999. Thankfully, it's not super cold, because she was running through the desert near the Sierra Caballo Mountains. I didn't realize this case was this recent. I don't know why I was picturing this was another case from the 70s. Probably because the 70s were horrific, but 1999, I I had no idea. Bit of a spoiler alert. It's not not from the 70s. Oh, God. So, a woman drove by Cynthia, saw her screaming, locked her car door, and sped away. Because Cynthia didn't realize how she looked. She had blood streaming from a head wound. A metal collar was padlocked around her neck. And she had a chain dangling behind her. A man in a second car swerved to avoid hitting her. And he also drove away. Oh my god. And she she felt helpless. And then as she's running, she came upon some small homes and trailers that were along the road. But they seemed locked up. And she didn't dare take the time to stop and knock. Because they could be behind her. The people that were after her could be behind her. So even stopping to knock on the door was taking too much time? That was too much of a risk. Then, as she's running, she spots a well-kept-up mobile home, and she sees that the door is open. Main door's open, screen door's there, and she ran over, rushed inside, and slammed the door shut. As she's in there, there is a surprised woman who lives there, just watching TV, and Cynthia is begging for help. So this woman's sitting there, enjoying her day, just watching TV, and this naked woman, covered in blood, chains dragging behind her, collar on her neck, bursts into her house, screaming for help. Oh my god, I cannot even imagine being in that type of situation, because like, so, number one, thank god that door was unlocked, so Cynthia could get in the door, but also... Mm -hmm. I'm just gonna say, this is why we lock our doors so people can't just bombard into our homes. This is one of those instances where I'm really glad the door was unlocked so she could get in because she needs help and no one was helping her. And like, but- Like, it's still hashtag lock your doors, not hashtag unlock your doors for- It is. But, yeah, I 100% agree. You're sitting on your couch just watching TV and someone in this type of situation runs through your front door- I would just be screaming because I wouldn't know how else to react. Yeah. Oh my god. Okay, so what did she do? What did she do when Cynthia like ran at her door? So the homeowner jumped up and she immediately hurries to help her when she sees how seriously Cynthia's hurt. Her hair is caked with blood. There's blood droplets all over her face and bruises all over her body. And as Cynthia's locking the door behind her, the homeowner runs to call 911 and to get a robe for Cynthia. Oh, oh my god. She She, ran into the right house. Yes, this woman is incredible. 
So Cynthia, who was only 22 years old, was stunned when she learned that she was about 150 miles away from where she lived in Albuquerque. She was in Elephant Butte, which is a resort town in New Mexico with about like 2,000 people that live there. Two police officers responded to the call, and Cynthia was crying hysterically. She was saying, I'm alive, I'm alive. And she tried to calm herself, and it was difficult, and she told them her story. I'm really scared to hear her story. You should be, because it's pretty terrifying, all of it. So three days earlier, on March 19th, 1999, Cynthia was working as a sex worker in a parking lot in Albuquerque, New Mexico, when this guy who's claiming to be an undercover cop told her that she was under arrest for solicitation of sex work, and he put her in the back of his car. I can't stand it when people pretend they impersonate a police officer. Because that is someone that you are supposed to be able to trust. And so it is so conniving. Oh, I'm already living and you haven't even started, really. So he told her that she was under arrest and he put handcuffs on her. But this man was not a police officer. This man was David Parker Ray. And he brought her to his nearby soundproof trailer that he called his toy box. That's so sick. He chained her to a gynecologist-type table, so where she's on her back, her legs are raised and spread. And over the next three days, he raped and tortured her with the help of his girlfriend and accomplice, Cindy Hendy. The two of them used whips, medical instruments, electric shock, and sexual instruments to torture Virgil. And before her torture... Ray would play this cassette tape that had a recording detailing exactly what she would be forced to endure. What? There was a recording so they were told beforehand what was about to happen? Yeah. On this cassette, Ray explained that she was to refer to him only as master and the woman with him as mistress and to never speak unless spoken to. And he went on to explain in excruciating detail exactly how he was going to rape and torture her and this is a long tape do you know how long it is i think it's like 20 minutes that is so long 20 minutes of listening to what is about to happen to you is horrible it's not as bad as it happening but it is very much up there in a later interview she said the way he talked It didn't feel like this was his first time. It was like he knew what he was doing. He told me I was never going to see my family again. He told me he would kill me like the others. Well, obviously, if he said like the others, then that is very much alluding to the fact that this is not his first time. Yeah, Cynthia is not his first victim. On the third day of the torture, when Ray was at work, Hendy, his girlfriend, accidentally left the keys to Virgil's restraints on a table nearby where she was chained while she left the room. And seizing this opportunity, Virgil lunged for the keys and was able to free her hands. Hendy attempted to stop her, but Virgil stabbed her in the neck with an ice pick when she approached her. Yeah, the weapons that they'd been torturing her with for three days, 
she used one of them to fucking escape, stab this bitch, and get out of there. Yeah. And, I mean, clearly they had just left them out in the open if she was able to... Wow, that's... Yeah. I'm I'm so glad that things lined up this way to where she could grab the keys, grab the weapon, and escape. There's pictures of the inside of this trailer, and it's horrifying how many torture devices there are in it. So after stabbing Hendy with the ice pick, she that was when she ran out of the trailer, naked, wearing just her slave collar and her chains. A little backstory on who the fuck this guy is. Yeah. David Parker Ray, he was born in Belen, New Mexico in 1939 and was raised by his grandfather, but his dad maintained a pretty abusive relationship with him and would beat him often. He had a younger sister, but they were split up when their grandmother died. In school, he did poorly and was teased for being very shy around girls, and as a teenager, he abused alcohol and drugs. But... On the outside, he appeared to be making the best of his less-than-savory upbringing. He joined the army and received an honorable discharge. From there, he became a mechanic at a local shop, and he married and had a child. You know, he had a pretty typical... I mean, honestly, what from the outside looks like, he's doing pretty well for the cards that were handed yeah, to him. Yeah, it seems like pretty normal. But it was nowhere close to what it seemed. Growing up, his sister realized he was very into BDSM and other sadomasochistic types of porn. And in the 50s and 60s, this was something that was very uncommon and very alarming to her. But she never spoke about it until his trial, decades later. David Parker Ray would confide with his wife that when he was a teenager... He captured a woman and proceeded to tie her to a tree, and from there he tortured and finally killed her. At what point in a marriage do you feel comfortable saying something like that? For real. I mean, when he told her, she took it with a grain of salt, but his increasingly disturbing behavior was what ended this marriage. I imagine when he first said it, she just didn't believe it. It's just horrifying. And then, Even if... The thing is, in my head, even if someone didn't actually do that, if they're saying they did, that is not a marriage you want to be in. But the reality is he did do it, which makes it even worse. So you really, really don't want to be in that marriage. Yeah. Three more failed marriages later, and he was in his 50s and settled into a small town in Arizona. He'd acquired some savings over the years, and he had a new girlfriend, and he decided that it was finally time to fulfill his lifelong dream now that he had the money. And most importantly, he had a woman by his side who was equally as fucked up and ready to help him do this as he was. And they were ready to build what would later become known as the toy box. How do you meet someone who wants to do something like that with you? The two of them spent over $100,000 on an empty and soundproof trailer, as well as the supplies that were in it. They stocked it with saws, knives, needles, a softly lined coffin with the head cut out for the head, so you'd be in the coffin with your head sticking out, electrocution clamps, ropes, 
and a plethora of sex toys that were intimidating to most. Perhaps the worst thing that he had in his toy box was the gynecological exam chair, which all of his victims would start off their nightmare in once they were kidnapped. So most of David Parker Ray and his girlfriend's victims were captured at the same bar. Um, the fact that they were all caught, or a lot of them were caught at a very similar place, I bet there was talk going around. There had to have been. Well, it was the type of place that a lot of hitchhikers and other wayward people would end up. And that was the type of person that the two of them needed in their victims. So, you know, it's not the kind of bar where Sandy, who's a regular and always orders her martini extra dirty with two olives, goes missing. It's, hey, you know, that girl in the pink blouse isn't here, but 99% of people that show up here are here for one night and then continue on the road or whatever. They're the invisible victims. Like, this is yeah. This is one of the things that's very messed up. Yeah, but they're, they're seen as invisible because they're transient. They're moving about. Like, yeah. they're not, you know, solid and in one place and invisible victims. I hate it. Yeah, and unfortunately a lot of them, and similar to your case that you did a few episodes ago with the redheaded murders, a lot of these victims were people that weren't necessarily having people looking for them or their loved ones wouldn't necessarily be surprised when they disappeared for years on end. But the two of these people would drug their victims' drinks at the bar and then they'd act as if they were going to get them home safely. They'd be like, oh my God, this person, they, they drank so much. Let's hear don't worry, Shelly, we're going to take them home because we're good people. We do this. So that's how they were known in this area, in this bar, as the ones that were taking care of people. Yeah, they they were known as just good people. They would then take the victims to their trailer, strap them to the gynecologist chair, and wait for them to wake up. Daniel Parker Ray had set up a sound system that was motion activated. So that once the victim woke up and started moving around trying to escape their restraints, a tape would play into the absolute darkness of the trailer, and the tapes would state that he was going to brainwash them, he was going to rape them repeatedly, cut them, play macabre games with them, drug them further so they wouldn't remember it, and then finally let them go. This is the real life Saw. The movie Saw, where literally I am now realizing was probably influenced by this. But the moment they wake up, like a tape started to play. Do you want to play a game? That's literally what he's doing. And that is, that makes these movies even more horrifying. Because I remember how scary it was hearing that. But knowing that this actually happened to someone... That's more fear than these movies ever would instill, but now knowing that, the movies are, like, even scarier. Does that make sense? Yeah, I absolutely think that those movies are at least influenced by this, and I'm horrified. So all of this went on for decades, and in addition to his girlfriend, 
He also got the help of his first daughter and her boyfriend, and even some of their friends in gathering victims or keeping them fed his, as they were contained. His daughter helped? His daughter. His first daughter helped. So, Ray kept diaries of his killings and included such details as to where and when he'd kidnapped these women, which a lot of that is why the police believe that while they only had hard evidence in a few cases, the actual number of his victims must have been a lot higher. Unfortunately, in his diary, Ray didn't say what happened when he was done with the women. That's insane. I mean, I get, I guess, in, in investigation, you can't really make assumptions, but this one seems like a very, like, he he well, did this was... to a lot of people, and, and we can't find them. I mean, I guess he didn't really identify them in there, in his journal, though. Well, the thing is, he didn't identify them. Again, a lot of his victims were transient and were not easy to locate. Right. So, after Virgil's escape... Ray and his girlfriend were arrested by police. And after arresting Ray, the police got a warrant to search his home and trailer, and what they found shocked and disturbed them. His toy box contained the gynecological chair table in the middle, and it had a mirror that was mounted to the ceiling so that his victims could see the horrors that were happening to them. A mirror on the ceiling? Yeah, so they could watch as all this happened to him. No, 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 no. Littering the floor were whips, chains, pulleys, straps, clamps, leg spreader bars, surgical blades, and saws, as well as numerous sex toys. It is literally a rape and torture chamber. It's a dungeon. This is just beyond everything. Oh my god. There was also a wooden contraption that was used to bend over and immobilize his victims while he and his friends would rape them. And his friends? He invited friends over? Yeah. People knew what he was doing, not just him and his girlfriend. Other people knew. What is wrong with these people? I don't know. And on the walls of the trailer, there were detailed diagrams showing different methods and techniques for inflicting pain. So there's literally, there's nothing that these victims can turn their heads to, to ignore what's happening. Because it's all around them. It's all around them. And even closing their eyes doesn't help, because he has the tapes playing that are telling them everything he's gonna do there's no way for them to escape any part of what's happening and in the trailer police also discovered a videotape from 1996 that showed a terrified woman being raped and tortured by ray and his girlfriend i mean i'm not gonna put it past them i am not surprised they had a video with all of the things that you have just described of course they recorded someone so, with all of the publicity that was surrounding the arrest of David Parker Ray, and considering the disturbing circumstances of these crimes, another woman came forward with a similar story. Angelica Montano, who was an acquaintance of Ray's, who, after she visited his house to borrow some cake mix, she'd been drugged, raped, and tortured by Ray, 
before being left by a highway out in the desert. She literally went over as a friendly neighbor to borrow something for cooking. Yeah, and was drug-raped, tortured, kidnapped, held against her will, and then dropped on the side of the road in the desert because he's a fucking monster. It is this kind of thing that I hate so much because it could be so easy to just become like a hermit and never leave your home, never talk to your neighbors, never get involved because you never know who you live next to. And that's so sad Mm -hmm. that that is the type of world we live in where the fact that I'm stating, "Ah, I get it if you don't talk to your neighbors, makes sense. I hate that. So she had been found in the desert on the side of the highway by police, but there had been no follow-up on her case. What? Honestly, that's one of the most heartbreaking parts of this case is that She'd gone to the police. She'd done all the things a victim could do. And they didn't follow up. There wasn't... No. There wasn't anything done. That is really heartbreaking because they could have caught him so much sooner. They could have saved a lot of women. Yeah. So one thing that made things difficult for those that did survive was that Ray would often use drugs that would induce amnesia and memory loss in his victims. Drugs like sodium pentothal and phenobarbital. So they, his victims wouldn't be able to properly remember what had happened to them. Oh my god. They would know. They would remember the trauma and they would remember flashes, but details that would be able to pinpoint who this was or where this happened or anything identifiable, they didn't have those. They just knew the pain and trauma they went through and nothing else. He's such a monster. So with this stronger case and with two victims testifying to the crimes, the police were able to put a lot of pressure on Hendy, who quickly folded and began telling what she knew of the murders and the torture. I'm glad she folded. Her testimony led police to discover that Ray had been helped in the abductions and murders by his daughter, Glenda Jesse Ray, and a friend, Dennis Roy Yancey. It blows my mind how many accomplices he had. How many, how many people, people knew were this? Fine with yes. this. Yeah. So Yancey admitted to participating in the murder of Marie Parker, who was a woman who was abducted, drugged, and tortured for days by Ray and his daughter before Yancey strangled her to death in 1997. So, after releasing some of the details about the woman in the video, she was identified by her ex-mother-in-law as Kelly Garrett, who was a former friend of Ray's daughter. Oh my god, it was his daughter's friend? Yeah. So, on July 24th of 1996... Garrett, after getting in a fight with her then-husband, decided to spend the night playing pool at a local bar with Jesse. Jesse then roofied Garrett's beer, and she and her father placed a dog collar and a leash on her and brought her to the trailer. He then raped and tortured her for two days, keeping her on date-rape drugs the whole time. And after these two days... He slit her throat and dumped her on the side of the road. But she survived. Oh my god. But no one, police, 
her husband, nobody believed her story. Her throat was slit. How do you not believe this story? That's not an injury that is accidental or necessarily like bar fight-ish. That is a very vicious kill injury. Her husband didn't believe her to the point he thought she'd just cheated on him that night and filed for divorce. Wow. That's a very selfish response. And due to the effects of the drugs that she'd been given, she had very limited recollection of a lot of the events over the two days, but she remembered the rape and being raped by the toy box killer. For most of these victims, the drugs, as well as their socioeconomic standing, made it difficult for their testimony to be accepted even by the jurors. Because they didn't know what to believe. Because, again, remember, a lot of these victims are transient or low-income. Or they're, they're people who other people don't want to think about. You know, you don't want to think about... You know, people that are homeless or underprivileged or have to go through things that you don't want to think about because it's bad. So they're, them telling their stories, them telling the jurors, the police, their, even their loved ones about what they went through, they're not believed. Yeah, it's a lot of socioeconomic stereotyping that is going on yeah that because of the position that they're in in their lives and the circumstances that are surrounding them people don't trust them people don't believe them and that that's a heartbreaking thing to be that person who's like no listen like i this is what happened this is what's going on and for people to be like nah nah whatever you have this like history of like lying or whatever so i'm not gonna believe you and it's so messed up Uh Yeah, and literally, and the fact that it's 2019, and I have to say this, I don't even want to think about, or talk about, or confront, but fucking believe women. Like, believe victims when they tell you things. I know. I mean, I feel like that should be a given, but apparently it's fucking not. But believe women. There's so much going on right now in our society that is so backwards. And we are just like stepping back in time in so many different scenarios that it, I agree, it blows my mind. Like, I don't understand why we can't believe women. I don't understand why we assume women have ulterior motives and they are just trying to advance themselves. So they're making this up. Like, no. Believe women. Believe that these women are victims. Don't sit here and assume you know their situation. You do not. Because, you know, it is good to, you know, innocent till proven guilty. But you cannot use that to dismiss others or dismiss claims. Because in the same way that you're believing innocent until proven guilty, you have to say truthful until proven lying to these people that are speaking up and speaking out about this shit they've been through. And let's be fucking real. In the society we're on, do you honestly think that anyone is going to actually say, oh, I was raped. 
I'm going to get money for all my stories. This is going to be a good thing. Because no. No. Because you tell people you were raped and they call you a slut. You tell people that you were drugged and they say, why did you have the drink that had the drug in it? You know, if you weren't drinking, no one would have put a drug in it. If you weren't wearing a short skirt, no one would have raped you. But really all they're fucking saying is they should have raped the drunker person. They should have raped the person wearing less clothes. Because there's always someone who is going to be more vulnerable than you are. And all that shit says is they should be attacked instead of you. And that's not fucking okay. It's not okay at all. It's not okay at all. Why can't we have a society where we just... Even though, yes, I'm not being naive. People lie. Like, that is... That is something that happens. But why do we always assume the lie and not try to believe the truth? Absolutely. Well, I'm going to continue. So, Ray began his trial on March 28th of 2000. And just after the jury selection was done, he suffered a heart attack and the trial was postponed. Cynthia Virgil and another surviving victim, Kelly Garrett, testified against him. But... For a reason that's not known, the judge postponed the trial further in order to try Ray for a 1996 murder in Colorado, even though the evidence wasn't very strong. So he's like, we hear your testimony, we're already in the trial, but like, hashtag pause. Let's go into this case that might not even be an outcome. What? Yeah. So on May 7th, Shortly before Ray's trial for the Colorado murder, Angelica Montano died of a drug overdose and took her testimony to the grave. Oh my god. Had she given it yet or she she was still like in line to give it? She hadn't given it yet. Oh my god. And she was the victim that went over to his house to borrow cake mix and was raped and attacked and left for dead. So she died of a drug overdose, wasn't able to testify, was, you know, again, took her story to her grave. And then, a few weeks later, on May 23rd, the jury selection for Ray's new trial was finally done. And he was charged with 12 counts of kidnapping, sexual abuse, and conspiracy. But in July, the judge declared a mistrial because the jury couldn't agree on a verdict. And not all of them were persuaded that the testifying victims had even been held against their will. But in November, a retrial began, and a few days into it, the judge passed away. Okay, what is going on? Why is everyone dying? Yeah, so the proceedings couldn't resume until April of the next year. But this time, Ray was not as fortunate and was found guilty on all 12 charges. Seriously, finally. In June, his second trial began, and he made a plea bargain to plead guilty in exchange for his daughter, who had been an accomplice in at least one murder, uh, to receive five years of probation for her. I'm sorry. So he'll he'll agree to being guilty if she gets five years probation. I'm sorry. She deserves a lot more. Uh, yeah. Consequently, Ray faced at least 223 years in prison. But, unfortunately, he never served his sentence. He died, didn't he? On May 28th of 2002, 
just as he was about to be transferred to prison, he suffered another heart attack and died at the age of 62. You know, yep, that's early to go, but I feel like he got an out. That's not fair. He did not have to serve any time for the horrific things that he did. No. I mean, he'd been in jail for uh, two and a half years. You know, during the trial and shit, but no. That's not enough. Are you... No, that's, no, that's nothing. People go to jail for two and a half years for like, I don't know, too many speeding tickets. And with him dead, the case became a dead end. No bodies had been found and no possible victims were identified and no old suspicious deaths that were related to him were ever officially linked to him. So basically he got away with so many more crimes than will ever be targeted to him. Yeah. I mean, in their investigation of him and his trailer, police found evidence of several more killings and the diaries where he wrote about the murder of at least 50 other women. Despite the evidence, the authorities weren't able to create cases from them. I mean, they had diary entries, and that's it. But though Hendy and Yancey identified areas they believed Ray had disposed of bodies, police found no human remains in either of the locations. And it's believed that a serial killer who put this amount of effort into his horrifying toy box and who killed numerous women over the years would very likely have a much greater number of victims. And the many unidentified personal effects and jewelry that were also found in his trailer also point to a much greater number of victims for the toy box killer. New Mexico police are still investigating the cases of Ray's suspected victims, They've searched every lake in the area for bodies and followed every human bone found in the desert for possible connections to the women that were found on his list. But as of April 2015, Ray's toy box trailer remains in the possession of the Albuquerque FBI. There have been numerous documentaries and books on the crimes since his arrest, And he is still considered among one of the most frightening and disturbing serial killers ever to exist in America. And while a full number will most likely never be known, it is estimated that between the 1950s and 1999, David Parker Ray tortured and murdered at least 60 women. Police are still investigating and still asking anyone with information on Ray or any of the dozens of potential victims to call the FBI. Uh, You can reach them if you do have information at 505-889-1300. It's fine. I'm just sitting here absolutely horrified and I will say the last like two minutes literally sounded like the end of an Unsolved Mysteries case. And I just, I'm glad they're still looking into this, even though he has passed and he can't be 
you know, he, he can't yeah. serve time for these, but I'm glad they have not closed this case. He is yeah. a I'm monster. Glad... Oh my god. Yeah. I'm glad that they're still looking into it because so many cold cases don't get looked right. into. But I hate that they still have to be looking into it. And it's almost like they will always have to keep looking into it because they won't yeah. know until they like they will not know when they've gotten everyone because of the the mystery that's around the number and the fact that he's gone yeah. and can't have like that moment of like yep you got them all like they just they don't know yeah I think we should jump into postmortem, but I'm going to pass it off to Yes, you. I was literally about to say, but let me go first. So this episode was absolutely one of our most intense and most graphic episodes that I think we've ever done. Both of the cases that we presented are very much on that upper scale of torture. Like, some of the most horrific things I've ever heard of happening. And... Yeah. Colleen Stan was tortured for seven years, and she survived some absolutely horrific situations, but she survived. David Parker Ray was honestly, like, Satan. Like, everything he did, he was the devil incarnate. What he was doing was so horrific that it is very difficult right now to be completely honest to put words around this but the fact that he still has you know he has passed on there have been victims identified but there are so many unidentified victims that this investigation continues i think that just like Mm -hmm. levels up the intensity of your case because it's not over like he's gone yet the case continues because they know there are more victims out there that they need to find and identify. And so I really do think your case is the more intense in this really disturbing episode. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think as psychologically intense and as much as in your case, I feel I I feel like there are moments when you can only try to scrape at the surface at imagining what Colleen was going through. Absolutely. And I am not trying to discount her level of torture because we only know her level of torture and what she went through because she did survive it. And yeah. and, and that's huge. Huge that she survived it and huge that we unfortunately know the details of it. Yeah. And... One of the most heartbreaking things from all of this is there are victims from David Parker Ray that literally no matter how much evidence we find and how many bodies are uncovered will never be known. Right. Because he targeted people who didn't have people looking for them, who were able to disappear and never be found. And he knew what he was doing. And so there are women, there are victims that he wrote about that the only memory of what happened to them in their final days lives in his journal. That is really dark. Lives 
in the man who murdered them in his journal. He is the last person to remember them and know what happened. And that is so fucked up. It is. That's insanely dark. And like I was saying, that's why your case was more intense. Okay, well, I will pick the topic for next week's episode. And we'll see how we can uh, move on from this really intense topic. Yep. So be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. If this episode interested you, if you found it intriguing, go ahead and give us those five stars. Share us with your friends. We would love to get, you know, what we're doing out there. And if you if you enjoy us, spread the wealth. Also remember to like and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Also, make sure if you are interested in wine and want to get some uh, free shipping on shipments of incredible wine that is, uh, I mean, basically like built to order to check out page.firstleaf.club slash blood and wine and enter in all caps blood and wine in the promo box code at checkout and you'll get free shipping for an entire year. Yes, just log on there take the quiz they will recommend wines specific to you and you'll be well on your way to enjoying some delicious new wines that you may have never picked out for yourself absolutely but with that this is blood and wine signing off xoxo bye you guys bye